Welcome to What's Next, Cornet Global's podcast that puts members on the microphone with thought-provoking, profession-shaping conversations and commentary. Hi, this is Tim Venable of Cornet Global. Joining me today is Christian Bigsby, Senior Vice President, Workplace Resources at Cisco. He's here to talk with us about corporate real estate strategy and workplace transformation. Thanks, Christian, for being here. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Tim. Before we get into the topic, if you would, please introduce yourself a little further. Sure. I would guess I won't start with back when I was born. That usually probably goes back a little bit too far. So why don't we just talk about my professional background and that's it. Okay. Um, I am uh, I'm part of the Cisco team. I've been part of the Cisco team for uh, approaching six years now. Uh, prior to that, I did 26 years in the life sciences business, working for one of the large pharmaceutical companies. Uh, I would say in the last five plus years, I followed through on the same things that I was doing in the life sciences business, which is real estate, construction, project management, facilities management, services, and design. I'm a designer by training, so going back far too many decades, I was actually trained formally as a designer and as a facility planner and have since sort of stayed true to that background of still working in the space of construction, services, design, and facilities management. Okay, excellent. Now, here's my first question. How has Cisco's real estate strategy changed over the last couple of years, and why does it matter? So uh, maybe we start with one of the, the pieces that has been an interesting shift in the company, and that is that right around the time of pandemic, uh, we actually reshuffled part of the organization and moved the real estate function, which used to be part of the operations and the COO function. We actually moved it under what at the time was the chief people officer, uh, but it is now aligned with a wider corporate structure that we really call our purpose group, but it is our purpose policy and people organization or our three uh, our three p organization um, and that is led through a number of different functions everything from sustainability to our people and traditional hr services our government affairs function our country digitization uh, as well as uh, a lot of our community engagements and our inclusive communities organization so a high high diverse function of traditional corporate functions, but we've actually rolled this all together inside of Cisco. So it's a heavily purpose-based organization. And when we say that, we don't mean abstract purpose, but we mean the way we show up in the brand of driving better community engagement, how we actually show up in marketplaces to invest, how we show up to make sure that our real estate supports the local economy, but also supports our people in those, those economies and in those communities. So a heavy people-based function and very much a heavy purpose-based function. So how we show up inside of the communities where we operate with purpose, with intent, and, uh, and really on behalf of our people. Great. Now, if you would, can you discuss how Cisco has approached its workplace transformation and share some detail on changes you've made? Sure. So we decided to almost hit pause at the beginning of the pandemic to draw together some of our, our senior executives in the company to determine what was our real estate portfolio going to look like going forward. And instead of just starting with the real estate we have today, we instead looked at, so where are we operating? Why are we operating in those locations? 
And what is it going to be that's going to, to bring the company into the next chapter? We've been going through a very significant transformation exercise at the company level, how we break out the composition of, of the different markets we operate in, what are the different products we sell, what are the different services we sell, um, how do we show up in the marketplace that way. We took the same approach with our real estate, being really intentional and very purpose-driven on why we have real estate in certain markets and is it the best place for us to operate. What we found that was, was a pretty fascinating almost hypothesis meets pseudo-conclusion was that we believe that we ended up in the right metros and the right cities, but often in the wrong neighborhoods. And what I mean by that is there were places that we were very much a suburban company when we should have been an urban company. In some places, we had a significant employment in a particular market, but we weren't aggregating that presence together for a brand so that we could actually recruit talent. We found that we were near our customers, but we weren't in the places that were gave us the best proximity to our customers. Um, we were in certain markets and then realized that those were high talent markets where we could go after early in career, but we were placing them in locations that were incredibly expensive and almost impossible for us to go after early in career, or as we often call it, early in Cisco. Uh, so it's not just people that are young in age, it's also people that are young in tenure. So we were very intentional around what would the real estate portfolio look like if we started again. And what we found was, the good news is, we don't have to radically rethink it, but we do have to go in with a really intentional purpose of why do we have this real estate in these particular markets and what are we trying to accomplish inside of there? That's where it really got important to us is differentiating between what we want as an employee experience. So when people come to the literal or figurative office uh, or where they come to their labs, where they have access to their technology and to their, their developmental campaigns and others. But also, how do we experience or how do we allow our customers to have a different experience? What are the markets where our customers want to come in and see our technology live and in use? So we really differentiated across what we wanted from an employee experience and what we wanted from a customer or a market experience. And that was a really subtle but really important shift for us where it wasn't just about let's renovate a, an interesting building. It was more a what do we want to do inside of these spaces? And we were really, really careful to make sure that everywhere we have people, we want to make sure that we are aligned to the brand that is our company of the right technology, the right footprint. And I don't mean square footage. I mean the emissions, the impact we have, how do we employ people, how do we bring our customers and bring them in together where we can showcase what we do for the betterment of the community or what we can do to provide great technology that just fundamentally works. What can we do to recruit people into a market where they say, I now understand the brand, I now understand the enterprise that is Cisco. So our transformation really has not been about making the offices look better. It's about being really intentional around why we have these properties. Do we have them to showcase our technology to our customers? Do we have them so that we can recruit the best possible talent in that market? Do we have them because this is where we service our 
customers and where we service our partners and make sure that it's about speed and quality of solutions for those customers? Or is it this is where we do our engineering work and this is where we do our developmental campaigns for the next software, the next hardware, the next platform, the next security protocol that assures that our customers are not just able to get a great experience, but we're actually able to continue to transform their experience as customers of Cisco. So it's about purpose and it's about being very intentional around why we have real estate in certain markets. Excellent. Thank you. Now, what are some of the challenges you're trying to solve for today? So this is um, probably an almost laundry list if we wanted to go into it. So this is probably a really difficult question to, to answer. So let me start with a couple. Um, the first of which is we are trying to be very careful through the lens of sustainability as to where we have real estate and what that means in those markets. We are trying to not, we're not just dumping surplus real estate to add to the, the problems of vacancy in markets. We're trying to be careful about if we need different environments to work in, that we don't just start again and start building new construction. Uh, we think there's plenty of real estate. The question is, how do we reuse the, the real estate we have or the real estate that the market already has? <clears throat> so we've very much been in the business of more renovation and rethinking and consolidation instead of let's start from scratch and get rid of something we have and go into something brand new. <clears throat> I would say that um, the sustainability side of both how we look at the footprint that we leave behind us, how we look at the emissions of what we create is is really deeply embedded in the decisions we make. And we also are thinking that through the lens as to are the solutions we're bringing to bear in these markets a sustainable solution in the sense of we can live with this for a long period of time, not it looks good for today, but in fiscal year 25 or fiscal year 26, are we going to have done something that, yeah, we have to undo that or unpick that. So we are trying to work very, very focused on or being very focused on a sustainability solution for every decision that we make in this. We are also evaluating the sites to figure out what is going to matter the most that we're going to measure inside of those sites. So if we're saying we're standing up a talent center, how are we going to prove that we've been successful at that? And trying to now change the old metrics of cost per square foot or cost per person or you know how long your lease was or how much free rent you got. Instead, we're measuring things like, were we able to recruit as many people as we wanted in that market? Were we able to recruit our first choices? Were we able to you know, stem the tide of attrition? Um, we performed very well during the pandemic, when it came to attrition, we really looked after our people in a lot of ways. We want to make sure that we can keep that and keep you know that that competitive advantage for us. So we're making sure that our sites are feeding that idea of how we look after our teams and how we make sure people have what they need to do their jobs. That becomes a different sort of metric. And you can imagine the business gets a little reluctant to start being measured on outcomes that have a real estate component to them, but it's no longer just how much am I paying per square foot? How much am I paying for employee? So that's been an interesting challenge in and of itself. And then I think the, the other piece I'd, I'd share is I think we have all to a certain degree had to manage the tensions of what the modern real estate experience looks like for her employees. So when we think about hybrid work, which, 
you most people define hybrid work in a way which is allows it just a bit more flexibility. You can work from home sometimes. You can work in the office sometimes. You can work on the road. You can work in public places. The notion of hybrid is that it's not routine every single day and that there will always be meetings where some people are in the room, some people will be virtual. Some some meetings are set up to be intensely in the room. Other meetings can be 100% virtual or distributed. That has created some interesting tension points that I would describe as maybe three axes that we're trying to measure across or that we're trying to balance, and that's how do we assure well-being of the employees, but at the same time productivity? Now you can make a you can make an intellectual argument that those two things aren't in opposition to one another, and that that well employees are also productive employees, and that productive employees are also looking after their well-being because it's sustainable. But the reality is, is that how do we give people enough care for themselves and the, you know the human being that's there and at the same time make sure that the business is getting what it needs in terms of those resources that are those people so how do we manage the tension of well-being and productivity the other is flexibility versus accountability and maybe versus is the wrong word to put in there but how do we make sure that people have flexibility because we have measured and we know that people associate flexibility with their with attrition so if you can manage employees that feel like they're heard and that they have some flexibility in their day-to-day -day choices, they feel a stickier connection to the company that they work for. So at the same time, though, how do you hold people to account that I want you to be flexible, but I need that by such and such a date? And that's a lead that is a classic leadership tension of giving people choice, but at the same time, making sure that people know exactly what is expected of them. So these aren't either or decisions. They're just tension points we have to manage. And then the third is location and connection, right? We've been highly successful during pandemic at recruiting people from markets where we haven't traditionally had a footprint or had a community or had a place for people to go. That's great. How do we make sure they feel a connection to Cisco? That if you're a remote employee all the time and you never get a chance to go for a walk for coffee or go for a walk for tea or have lunch or just to, you know, attend a career fair or attend a lunch and learn, whatever it may be. How do you make sure that those remote employees feel just as included as the people that are literally sitting next to each other in an office building somewhere? And what we don't want to do is rotate so much towards location distribution that everyone feels like a hired gun and they just go to whomever pays them more to be remote at the same time, making sure that they are absolutely connected to the culture that differentiates people's employment experience. So those those three tension points of well-being and productivity, flexibility and accountability, and location and connection, those are the really interesting wrestling matches we're having right now and trying to help both leaders and staff members realize this isn't an either or. You don't have to toggle all the way to one side and then all the way to the other. It's finding that balance on a daily cycle, a weekly cycle, and a quarterly cycle. That's great, Christian. You're really at the forefront of some of the big issues facing the corporate real estate profession. Glad to hear about those new metrics and the tension and the axes. That's a great uh, response, and I appreciate that. Very insightful. Next up, I have this question. Uh, you mentioned that accommodating a dynamic workforce is a challenge. So how are you and Cisco addressing that? This is the challenge on that tension point of this idea of location, this idea of flexibility, and starting to embrace the idea that employees have choice. The question is, is how much choice gets embraced at, at the company at the enterprise level? Um, 
I would say that the absolute non-negotiable reality is every workforce is going to be increasingly dynamic. That where people are, where people choose to reside, where people choose to be employed, that is only going, this is a linear change, right? This is not a cyclical change. There may be a cyclical component to it, but the linear change of more choice, the linear change of more distributed workforce, the linear change of more diverse workforce, that is a linear change that will continue to progress. It just may not progress as fast as we all experienced between 2021 and 2023, right? So you, what you're now seeing is Okay, so people, oh, well, people are coming back. Well, they're coming back, but they're not coming back in exactly the same ways that they were before, in the same numbers, with the same routine. And I think that idea of the dynamic workforce is so important. One of the, the benefits we have is it allows us to recruit from anywhere now. It allows us to really embrace the idea that we can get talent anywhere, and it doesn't have to be in the same metro locations that we've historically been. So that, that's a positive. Our technology allows us to allow people from work from anywhere. So we're, we're not new to the hybrid game. We've been in it for a long time. We may not have recognized it with the language of hybrid work, but we have been more flexible and more distributed in our workforce than most of our direct competitors. But that's kind of table stakes for everybody now. And, and I think that the, the challenge of this is now putting the onus on leaders to stop measuring things like attendance rate and to start to make sure they're measuring business outcomes. That is perhaps the most difficult challenge we have in the dynamic workforces. It is not simply about somehow believing, and, and I, one of our executives, I think, framed it up this way, is that it's time for us to stop pretending that attendance is some sort of proxy for productivity, right? Mm -hmm. So this idea that because a person badged into a building, they're productive is a bit of a foolhardy proposition, right? We, we're going to have to think differently about how leaders activate spaces, how they activate buildings, how they activate their teams, how they give teams a, a rational and coherent reason to come physically together in a place to meet. We all recognize those meetings that are worthwhile to we, we all recognize those times that it was absolutely worth the trip or it earned the commute as it's become a bit cliche inside of this. But what you get is hard to measure, but the reality is it creates that, what I refer to as that strange one plus one equals three math, right? If you can get the two of us in a room at the same time, we can solve more than just, you know, the ideas that the two of us each have independently. We can actually create something that's truly synergistic. That is something that is a challenging shift because it's never been something that we've explicitly had to measure or put that responsibility on leaders. They were expected to run their business, but having access or easy access or proximity access to their, their people, their teams, and their leaders is something that we probably took for granted for too long. And now we're realizing quickly, it's not about attendance, it's about events. It's not, it's, it's um, as our CEO says, how do you make the office a, a, a magnet, not a mandate? If you mandate attendance without great experiences, resentment is going to grow dramatically. If you can create attendance that is supplemented by great career fairs, great lunch and learns, great FaceTime with the senior executives, now you're creating something special. And I think that is the challenge we have in embracing the new dynamic nature of the workforce. 
um, for years, for maybe even decades, we believed that, you know, people would come to the mountain. I think it's time that the mountain starts realizing that it has to go out to the people to start mm-hmm. to harvest even more talent that's out there in the more distributed markets than we've seen in the past. Not everybody can live in the Bay Area. Not everybody can live in the greater London market. Not everybody can live in Singapore. Not everybody can live in Shanghai. Not everyone can live in Sydney. So how do we how do we keep finding those great markets where that is the next generation of talent? And we're going to go after it no matter where it is. Fantastic. You got some great ideas there. Turning now to another topic, design comes to mind. Design must play a role in all this and some of the goals you have. So what are some of the key design criteria you're now incorporating? The place I'll start with on this is that spending some time to do the design is a great ad because I think for a lot of folks that got into this sort of mechanistic approach of we need space, this is how we do it, let's get it done, let's get the funding approved, let's start the construction process. Um, I had a former colleague who retired from the industry he used to say, it's hilarious before you even start the design, you get a, we can't because the cement trucks are already backing up for <laughs> footings, right? It's like, you can, wow. you, you, and, and I thought that was a funny way of putting it. And it's, <laughs> and now we have this situation where we don't need to start from scratch. We don't need to build new buildings, but we do need to start from scratch on our thinking around, I'll use Cisco as an example. What's the purpose of why we have this space? What do we need to incorporate in the design that will give us a more sustainable solution? Embedding technology in that, but making sure that the heart of this, it's to give people an experience that is intentional. So, and design is where that happens. Uh, it, It isn't about giving them great carpets. It's actually about making sure the technology works behind the scenes, right? I, I'm, I, it's a silly joke, but I've used it in a lot of different applications, but um, we have a tendency to want to show all the machinery of everything that we do in the design world or the construction process or the real estate world. And the reality is people just want the wheels hidden. They want the machine behind the curtain and just give me a great experience. And we have a tendency to refuse to hide the pulleys and and hide the wheels. We instead want to show all the machinery. People just want a great intuitive experience when they show up. So take the time to do the design, number one. Number two is really thinking through how people are going to experience this, not expecting everyone to physically be there. So how do you create a great hybrid experience where the meeting rooms are set up so You have a great experience in the room, but for the three or four participants that can't be in the room, how do they have an equitable experience sitting outside the room? Mm -hmm. So being really intentional around the technology. Um, Look, we're spoiled in Cisco because the quality of our technology platforms, the quality of our collaboration tools, uh, they just work and they work seamlessly. And the more integrated you are, the the better experience you have. Uh, the reality is not everybody's in that same place because they're fighting all sorts of incompatibility across their technology platforms and others. So the more you can integrate the the technology, the better it disappears into the back. And then you can focus on leaders driving great outcomes and teams driving great deliverables and individuals having great experiences. That is a really interesting design criteria for us. And then the other is are we making technology a critically integrated part of the experience or are we just building the same stuff with better meeting rooms, 
right? Are we actually paying attention to everything from air quality in our spaces and seeing it in real time? Are we able to measure what people are, how people are moving through our spaces, right? If you if you go back 25, 30 years in time, we used to do, you know, hand recorded on Palm Pilots, you know, time and motion studies and time utilization studies to see where people were. We knew even back then people moved around during the day. Imagine mm-hmm. being able to have real-time data that shows, you know, the migratory clouds of how people move during the day. And you start to see, you know, I'll give you a silly example. During COVID, one of the interesting things we were able to use, we were able to see which were the red zones where a lot of people had congregated or moved through. So we knew how to prioritize our cleaning programs. You know, back, mm-hmm. it, funny to look back on, because we didn't know how much cleaning was playing a role, you know, in, in, in the contagion. So we were deploying our housekeeping crews where we saw sort of red zones that were high use. Um, incorporating tech is something that has to be thoughtful. But I think for companies in general, they really, really need to be thoughtful around what is their brand in the design process. I think there's still people out there that walk through someone else's building and say, this is what we want. We want exactly that. And you think, explain to me why you think that is right for your company. You know, if you're an automotive company versus a banking company versus, you know, some other versus technology versus life science, each of those sectors are going to have a different business outcome that they require or a different experience that they want want to go through. That's something that needs to be thoughtful in the design process. I think there's a lot of folks that see something interesting that's written up in a trade magazine and thinks, oh, I'll have some of that. Instead of what are the pieces from that industry and that industry and that industry that I can pull together into something that's relevant for my, my situation. I think people have a tendency to sort of mimic what others are doing instead of really thinking through what they need as a business outcome or what they want as an experience for their employees that's on brand and that feels authentic for who they are. Those are the big ones. I mean, obviously, we're doing a huge amount of work around our green building standards and our well-certified buildings and our LEED certifications and others. All those are not afterthoughts. We're being very intentional about them. But we're finding increasingly that that's more of a slow burn for us because those are most important when you have a new opportunity. You can do slow improvements in the things you already have, but it's really hard you know, to do a lead certification on something that already exists. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But you can start to improve your well certifications and you can do others. So how do you do the slow burn activities, but also seize those big opportunities where it's like, man, don't blow this one. Do a responsible lease practice that you're know, doing business with landlords that are that are doing things in an ethical way. Do your construction in the, in the lightest of footprints kind of things. Do your installations with the least products. Make sure that your the the air quality standards in your building and the the off gassing of your products and others are are the most responsible they can be. But those are your big opportunities. Just don't miss those slow burn activities of the buildings you already have and that you already occupy. <laughs> great thoughts, great advice. Now I'd like to pick up on a theme you mentioned already, but it's so important. I'd like to come back to it, and that is technology. So from your perspective, what role has technology played most recently in, in your work? Look, at its core, our technology powers hybrid work. And that isn't just, you know, our sort of brand statement that we make out there. But without tech, it is really hard to embrace. It was, it was really hard to pass papers off the typewriter if you lived 100 miles apart. I remember, you know, my father's first computer in his business back in the, 
I want to say early 80s, they actually used to take the reels off of the computer recording. They'd put them in a box and they had a courier service that delivered them three hours away to New York City every week because that was everything from the payroll records to the payable records, you know, to the what had been bound coverage in the insurance mm -hmm. business. So the idea of the world's changed a little, I'd say, in the, la in the last 40 <laughs> years on that. I believe it is. But, but the reality is we still have a lot of old vestigial parts of, no, no, I need to see you in front of me in, able, in order to know that I can trust you, Tim. And you think, is that really still the same way? Or can we put some technology that, that reminds you without being creepy that, Look, Tim's focused on this. I can see that he's I can see that he's focused on this discussion. I can see that he's not multitasking doing 75 other things. We're going to have to change some of our own behaviors inside of this, but the tap can help us do that without getting creepy, right? It can it can look at to see whether or not you're you've got the attention of the people that you're broadcasting to. It can tell you whether or not the meeting room you're operating in is optimal in terms of temperature, humidity, lighting, etc. So we're starting to embrace all those as we, you know, kind of 5,000 data points, you know, every every hour that tells us what's going on inside of some of our buildings. Technology allows us to power hybrid work and it allows us to actually allow a distributed nature of work and still have the right kind of outcomes. I think that the other piece is it clearly drives some of our design decisions because we believe that the majority of our non-engineering spaces are there for people to gather. With the exception of the folks that manage customer caseload and with the exception of the people in engineering that are doing product development and product design and product testing, product demonstration, the work is not happening in a physical place in most cases. It's happening in the abstract sense. So the tech needs to support that. But we need to make sure when people do come to a place that the technology experience is great. You know, the, the, it, gone are the days that people came to the office to have a great video call. You can do a video call from anywhere if you have a good platform. So now you need to make sure when you come to the office, it's secure, it works, it's frictionless, and, and so it's, it is really informing not just what we design, but how we drive a great experience for our folks. And then lastly, all those 5,000 data points that we have allow us to start to think differently about how much space do we really need? What's the configuration and composition of that space? Do we really need more space or do we need more meeting rooms? We, we have one engineering function that pre-pandemic was probably our highest in the office occupancy out of just how they worked. As a result, they had very few meeting spaces because they did so much work at the desktop and it was more informal huddles on things. Now that group was forced to work remotely for a long period of time. When they've come back now, their work practices have changed and their work practices have more huddles, more meetings, more discussions. They wanted, I should say, wanted more space the reality is, is they needed a different composition of space. So we now mm -hmm. need to install more meeting spaces, more huddle spaces, more one-on-one -on -one spaces because they're doing less work at the desk because their work is happening everywhere in all sorts of hours and all sorts of corners. But when they do make the trip or the destination, you need to make sure that they've got the right settings to actually conduct their work activities. So tech is allowing us to inform the decisions better to say, 
you know, it's not that your badge has changed. It's that what you're using inside of the space has changed. You don't need as much desk time. You need more meeting time. So we need to change the composition and the distributed nature of the work inside of your spaces. Excellent. Great thoughts there. Now, Christian, you're a senior real estate and workplace leader. I'd be curious just to get what recommendations you would have for your counterparts out there in the corporate real estate profession today. So the first one, I, I've said it in a way, I would say it again, and that's that you really have to be authentic to who you are as a company or who you represent inside of the company. Getting excited about what somebody else does is fa a fabulous emotional response, but to get practical, it's how would I translate that into my company? There's plenty of my peers and colleagues that have some amazing locations, but I'm not sure how many of them are relevant to what I have. And it's how you take that and translate that into a coherent application of others' ideas into what works for your industry or your company or your culture. You know, often people get stuck and think culture is a soft side thing. And the reality is, is the minute something happens, it feels out of whack with your culture. People know that it's phony, right? They know that it was an attempt to just sort of, well, maybe this will give us a short-term influence on our teams. And it's, it just doesn't work. I mean, I, there's an old training video, if you've ever seen it, called Fish. Uh, there's another one called Catch, and it's related to Pipe Place Market, the infamous fish-throwing fish market in, in Seattle at Pipe Place. And there's an interview they do with people after they've seen saying, well, how would you bring fun back to your office? And so it was, I don't know, I work in a hair salon. What am I going to do, just throw hair around the salon? <laughs> and it's interesting because the point is that the person took the idea of throwing fish literally, that the answer was to throw things, when actually it's to just have fun and make a little bit of whimsy out of a hard job, right? Being a fishmonger is not an easy business. It's a dangerous business. It's a mm -hmm. cold business. It's early hours. It's constantly in interfacing with customers, but they figured out a way to make it fun and turn it into a show. The real estate has to be the same. How do you make it a little bit whimsical, but whimsical on brand for who you are as a company? So you really have to be authentic to what you do. The other is you have to be intentional around what you're trying to create. Smart people will quickly pick up on the cues of what they're supposed to be doing inside of a space. So if you're trying to create great collaborations, your building should indicate that. Your leader should indicate that. If you're trying to create great career development opportunities, you need to have a, almost 100% of your senior executives conducting mentoring and coaching and career development and sponsorship and others. Otherwise, people are going to say, well, I could have gone to any company. Why would I come to this business and work in Atlanta or work in New York or work in San Francisco or work in Paris, et cetera, if I'm not going to have access to leaders that are going to help me with sponsoring and coaching and mentoring? Getting your leaders on point to realize their role inside of this real estate play has got to be intentional and it has to be thoughtful and it has to be on brand. And then I, I think the whatever you do to elevate your space just doesn't mean anything if the leaders don't engage with it. Otherwise, you know, I think that real estate is not much different than salary. And that's that people get really excited about a raise, but typically the research says it only lasts about two paychecks. Once you get mm -hmm. into the third pay cycle, You've reestablished the baseline of your spend. 
you've reestablished, you've you've bought a more expensive car, or you're finally able to pay off credit cards, or, but you've baselined that into this is my new income base. Mm-hmm. Real estate, if you let it, just becomes an arms race. Uh, we gave more amenities, we we put better finishes in, we put in better food, we put in better services. Without leaders to activate that space, I think you're lost. So you have to be authentic to who you are. Uh, you have to actually be intentional around what experiences you're trying to create and what outcomes you're trying to create. And you have to have leaders run the way. If it's just the real estate teams driving this, you're driving it from the supply side. You really need leaders to drive it from the demand side and build up that excitement of people saying, I want more of this. I want more of these career fairs. I want more of these connections. I want more of these coaching forums, et cetera. So those, those are my three recommendations to peers. Okay. Fantastic recommendations. Thank you. And now, Christian, my last question is this one, going back to workplace transformation, what were some of the surprising challenges you faced or maybe unexpected discoveries that were made during your workplace transformation? I love this question because I think anyone that listens to it has one, two, or three, and they're probably completely different from what mine is. Maybe there's some thematic similarities, but the first I would say is that we learned how quickly people's habits changed, people's routines and habits changed. Their belief structure didn't change, but their habits changed. People adopted pets that maybe never had a pet before. People moved, right? There are a lot of people that were living in certain markets that said, why would I live here at a cost of 3X when I can go closer to my you know, ancestral home? at 1x, be closer to my family and not have to brave this commute the same way on a daily basis. So people's people's behaviors and habits changed quite a bit. Their beliefs didn't change. So they still believe they want to see people. They still believe in their company. They still believe in the pursuit you know, of what they're doing. But their daily routine, their commuting pattern, we have people that you know sold their cars and said, well, I'm not going to commute anymore. So I'm selling my car. We have people, as I said, adopted pets. People had children, people got married, people separated, you know, people changed partnerships, people, we know people migrated out of certain metro areas and went to more rural areas. So that that was one, the scale to which surprised us how much that changed, who showed up. The horror story as an example was we had one of the best food service operations in the world at our Bangalore, India site. We used to serve, and I I forget the exact numbers, but let's say on a base of 14,000 people a day, we probably served 9,000 meals a day, something like that, maybe even 10 or 12,000 meals on some days. Nowadays, that toggles between 1,000 to 4,000. Try to plan for demand, you know, with that Mm -hmm. sort of oscillation Mm -hmm. in the demand. That's really difficult for us on the FM side. The other surprise we had is actually funny, but discouraging at the same time. But we had a significant population of people that when they came back from the heavy lockdown days of pandemic, um, expected all the buildings to have been renovated to a new work work style. That we would have, you know, changed the all the air filtration systems, that we changed out all the furniture, and that we changed, you know, into the new technology, and that we updated everything. Important to remind everyone or for all of us to reflect back on, we had no idea how long this is going to last, how large scale is, what were, what was the permanence versus the temporary or the, the maybe the, the transient nature of this. 
we didn't do a lot of renovations during that time. We had a couple of projects that were en route before we went to lockdown that we finished, but we didn't do a massive renovation exercise because how would we have known what the future state was going to look like? But there were people that literally had expected us to go through our real estate and do significant changes. The meeting rooms would have had all its tech replaced everywhere that had questionable levels of fit and finish would have all been updated and all upgraded. We didn't know what we were going to need. So I would say those two things. One is about people's behavior and the other was the sort of the expectation of newness changed dramatically and then then surprised us when people came back from pandemic. But it's, I I think it's always important to, and maybe to leave this as as a closing thought is we could never have anticipated how much change we would be expected to go through in less than two years time, you know, 19 months. And the reality is we all had to make do with it in about 90 days of warning that we had to do this and then we had to live mm-hmm. with it for, for a year and a half, two years. If, if any of us were told five years ago that you're going to go into a two year lockdown, the world would have gone into an even deeper level of, you know, apocalyptic mm-hmm. behavior. And we had two decades of change management packed into a couple of years. And now <laughs> and we're still it. dealing with how do we solve these problems? How do we take on these really exciting challenges? And how do we do it in a way that doesn't just progress us back to some of the things we were doing in the past where we had too much real estate and too much heating and cooling and too much emission and you know too much money put into renovations in the wrong places. It's allowed us all a chance to maybe pause and think through how do we design these with more intent and with more purpose. Well, that is a great way to wrap up this afternoon, uh, Christian. I'd like to, uh, again, thank you for speaking with us and talking with Cornet Global. We've learned a lot and really appreciate all the great insights you shared today. My pleasure, Tim. Thanks for inviting me and uh, thanks for the chat today. This concludes this episode of What's Next. Want to record a podcast of your own? Have an idea or point of view you'd like to share? Visit cornetglobal.org to learn more.